From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Wednesday, November 22nd. Preliminary results for the Moab City Council election are in as of last night. Five candidates ran for three seats in the council. Caitlin Myers and Colin Topper won a majority of the votes, with Topper narrowly beating Myers, 935 votes to 928. Myers and Topper will join the city council in December, and incumbent Tawny Knutson-Boyd will keep her seat with 677 votes. Patrick Robbins received 597 votes and Brad Woodford 511. Current city council members Ronnie DeRossery and Kaylin Jones will be stepping down in December. The Grand County Clerk's Office was busy counting votes until polls closed at 8 p.m. last night. How many ballots did you get this year? It's about 1,500, somewhere in that ballpark. This is Gabe Wojtek, the Grand County Clerk and Auditor. So is that a good turnout? It depends on who you ask. You know, I think we have roughly 3,000 uh, active registered voters in Moab City. I was imagining it to be really bustling in here and like all hands on deck counting the votes, but um, it's pretty tame. I'm learning. This is might be a typical odd year election in terms of a little bit of a lower volume. About half of the active registered voters that are just in the city rather than countywide. To get to 70%, which is kind of where we've hovered around in past city municipal election turnouts, um, that's about 2,100. So it might be a push. We might be a little bit under that number. The final tally as of last night was 1,602 ballots, bringing voter turnout just under 60%. Wojtek says there are still a few ballots that need to be double-checked and probably some mail-in ballots postmarked by the due date that will trickle in, but there probably aren't enough outstanding ballots to change the preliminary results. The final results will be ratified on November 29th. Okay, so you have to match every signature with the driver's license signature on each ballot? Correct, yeah. Okay, and that's a human process, like you can't run that through a computer? No, there are in larger volume counties, they have a machine that actually does do that signature comparison. So you already did that comparison with all of these ballots. So you've been doing this like all week? Yeah, we have other ballots that have come in over the past few weeks where the signature hasn't matched and we need the voter to come in and verify that that signature on that envelope is indeed theirs. Those folks have until next Monday, that's uh, 5 p.m. on on next Monday after Election Day, to come in and cure their envelope. After the signatures are verified, ballots are then counted by a machine. This is the uh, DS200 tabulator. Any illegible ballots are then double-checked by hand. At the end of the night when we have all of the ballots that have been cast, what we do is ballot adjudication is when there might be a mark that the machine can't understand as a vote or not. And so we have a human eye on every one of those that are flagged by the machine. So there is an element of of hand counting or human counting in it. A post-election audit to double check the results will take place on November 28th at noon. And that process is open to the public. We audit a minimum of 50 ballots, and these are randomly selected by the lieutenant governor's office from our ballots. And then we make sure that the ballot image matches exactly how that ballot was counted in the cast vote record. Wojtek said this was a pretty standard election process this year, but there was one curveball. A couple weeks ago in Oregon and Washington, as they were approaching their election day and receiving ballots and processing them, they actually very unfortunately um, found uh, white powders in the envelopes, some of which was found to be fentanyl. 
And as a precaution here in Utah, the lieutenant governor's office sent a, a package out to every county with gloves, masks, and naloxone um, as, a, uh, as a safety measure for any ba- uh, election workers that were processing ballots. The county clerk's office did not encounter any ballots that were tampered with. You can find the official results of the Moab City Council election in today's show notes. The start of ski season is rapidly approaching, and many are prepping their equipment for the slopes. But some are adding more than just a fresh coat of wax. Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams covers one preseason tradition at the St. Mary Catholic Church in Aspen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In some Catholic communities, a priest might bless farm equipment or fishing boats. But in Aspen, where the main industry is recreation and hospitality, it's skis that get a good dousing of holy water. Because, you know, what we do during the week is not disconnected from what we do here on Sunday. Father Joe Grady blessed parishioner skis in a common room at the church. He invoked St. Bernard patron saint of skiers, snowboarders, and mountaineers. Bless, O Lord, we pray, these skis, that all who use them in traversing mountains, heights, and precipices, in powder and in snow, in blizzard and in tempest, may be preserved from all danger and catastrophe, traveling without harm on their journey and returning safely to their homes. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The blessing is also a chance to pray for lots of snow. From the Ellis Neeson Arts and Culture Desk, I'm Kaya Williams. There's been an increase in hydropower projects across the U.S., including on different tribal lands. But some advocates say tribes like the Navajo Nation aren't being consulted enough about these developments. As Chris Clements of KSJD reports, that includes a recent proposal for three new projects in northeastern Arizona. Percy Deal, a member of the Navajo Nation, is looking up at a pale stripe of sandstone that stands out against the rim of Black Mesa. Juniper trees speckle the steep cliff sides facing the site of a proposed hydropower project. All you have to do is look around here and this is a very beautiful land. Deal is a community liaison for the Navajo nonprofit Tonejonane, which works to protect water sources in the region. He and other Black Mesa residents are worried that the project could do damage to land that has ecological and cultural significance to both the Navajo and Hopi tribes. The hydropower company Nature and People First applied for federal permits last year to investigate the possibility of building three pumped water storage projects on and below Black Mesa to generate electricity for nearby cities like Phoenix and Tucson. Deal says the company and its CEO, Denis Payer, haven't done enough to involve nearby communities. It, it seems like from his perspective, his project is going to improve what's here. but but. His project is going to destroy what's here. In July, environmental groups filed resolutions with federal regulators from 18 Navajo chapter houses and agencies that oppose the projects. They're concerned about the potential overuse of groundwater underneath Black Mesa, which is still reeling from the environmental consequences of decades of extractive coal strip mining. Pumped water storage projects like this one generate energy by letting water flow downhill from high elevation reservoirs through a tunnel, turning a turbine as it travels to reservoirs at lower elevations. Then, when energy prices are low, water is pumped back uphill, forming a closed-loop system that stores and releases power, like a battery. Denny Payer is CEO of Nature and People First. There's a huge need in the Southwest for 
pump storage solutions to help deal with the intermittence of renewable energies. Not everyone in the region is in opposition to the projects. Paul Madsen is president of the Chilchimbito chapter, one of the communities where the reservoirs would be located. Chilchimbito doesn't have a, um, any kind of a economic uh, stand, so we have to start developing something to develop an um, economy for the nation, to also develop an investment, invest into the water industry. Madsen says the projects could provide much-needed jobs during and after their construction and improve infrastructure in the area. Heather Tanana says it appears Nature and People First didn't involve some of the communities who would be impacted by the project from the beginning. She's a Navajo citizen and an attorney who specializes in water policy in the West. It's kind of like an afterthought. And we have a long history of tribal communities being an afterthought in energy development. Tanana says there's a legacy of tribal communities in the Colorado River Basin being left out of conversations about water that they often have a legal right to use. For Deal, the importance of preserving the flora and fauna of Black Mesa and the water underneath it is the bottom line. You take something that's very precious to a group of population up here to do something for another population that is hundreds of miles away to to give them the energy and, you know, there, there, there's no balance in that, absolutely none. Even if Nature and People First is granted permits, the company says they're still at least seven years away from finishing construction. I'm Chris Clements in Cortez, Colorado. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, November 22nd. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.